I want to make the world a better place. And I know that's a bit like hippie-ish or whatever, but like if sharing my journey and my experiences can make someone else's life better, someone can learn from my experience. And it doesn't have to be gender dysphoria or, you know, LGBT, but if someone has something that they want to do and they're holding themselves back for a fear of failure, then I just say, just do it. Because if you never try, you'll never know. And it's really that simple. When it comes to your career, there really is no one formula for success. And if someone had asked me 20 years ago what career I would be working in today, I doubt I would have said employer branding, a career that didn't even exist at the time. Some of the best stories I've ever heard didn't follow a plan. They simply embraced the journey. And that's why I've created this podcast, to share the many career stories that have shaped the people behind them and to encourage future generations to trust more in the process instead of stressing over getting it right the first time. I'm Steve, and welcome to the My Career Story Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the My Career Story Podcast with me, your host, Steve Keith. Now thanks again to last week's guest Rath on this special mini-season within a season in celebration of Pride Month. Uh, amongst a plethora of really interesting themes, he talked about the importance of listening and listening with intention. Something that's always been really important to me and reinforces what it means to be empathetic and compassionate. Something we are sadly lacking in the world at the moment, if I'm brutally honest. Especially where it's affecting our ability to understand and celebrate difference which to me is one of the most wonderful things about being part of the LGBT plus community. Now, this coming weekend would have been Pride in London, the parade being an important part of continuing the fight towards equality, especially for those in the trans community. Which brings me to my fourth guest on the My Proud Career Story, Debbie Cannon, who I've had the pleasure of getting to know throughout the last 12 weeks of lockdown here in the UK through her social media channels. Debbie is a trans woman who shares her transition to empower others to live their truth. She's an award-winning insurance leader, presenter on Gadio, manages an indie band, and writes an independent music blog, Dreaming is Free. Now you may remember her from an earlier episode this season, celebrating World Voice Day, and she's back this week to talk candidly about her journey so far. So I've got the lovely Debbie with me today. Hello. Hello, my darling. How are you? Not too bad, yeah. It's nearly the weekend. <laughs> yeah. God, how are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. I've been a lot yeah. worse. Yeah. You've had quite a stressful week this week, haven't you? Yeah. Yes and no. I mean, um, work's going really well. I'm kind of nine weeks into a new role. So I was maybe done at the start of uh, lockdown. Worst timing ever. Wasn't COVID related, the redundancy, but still... The impact of that when you're working in an office and have an office-based role generally um, was quite stressful. But um, yeah, nine weeks into the new role now, I'm absolutely flying, really, really enjoying it. Um, My writing career um, seems to be taking off. So that's been really good in terms of musical journalism. Um, So I've been really busy with that. But um, I did leave the house for the first time in in 10 weeks um, on Wednesday. And obviously yesterday. And yeah. I think I'm still getting over it. <laughs> so for, before we dive into your career story, for those people that don't know you um, already, why was it that it was the first time in 10 weeks yesterday? 
um, I had a post-traumatic splenectomy when I was 19 years old. Um, mm. I was cycling and I went over the handlebars of the bike, internally bleeding for two weeks, didn't know about it. Um, in excruciating pain, crying in my bed. I was in the army at the time. Um, that was one of the things I did to try and get rid of the, 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 the female in me. As you can see, it worked. <laughs> but joking aside, um, yeah, so double up in pain. And all the lads in the room were taking the, 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 the mickey out of me as you do in an army environment and saying there was nothing wrong with me. Take some Rennie. <laughs> so yeah, when I ended up going to um, the army hospital and like the nurse was crying. They found this civilian ambulance, like whisked me up to the civilian hospital. Um, laid around on a bed and casually for two and a half hours. And this is with a ruptured spleen. Um, we didn't know that that was what had happened. And then they took me for an ultrasound and it goes, right. yeah, I'm going to have because your spleen has ruptured um, and I had two and a half pints of blood trapped on my diaphragm. So I was literally, it was, it was shortening my lung capacity so I couldn't breathe. The pain was, oh, I mean, mm. I've experienced pain of a different nature since. It's very, you know, traumatic. But um, yeah, it was a lot of pain. But because of that, my immune system is compromised and a high risk of infection. So um, as we're shielding uh, vulnerable people for lockdown for coronavirus mm. in the UK, I have been yeah. in house for 10 weeks up yeah. to yesterday. Goodness me. Well, okay. So now we'll explain that. So, Debbie, what is your career story? <sighs> Do you want to from right from the start? Or like from wherever you, wherever start, you okay. feel is the best place to start it from. Okay, I'll, I'll start from where I start when I give my talk. So, um, I left school at 16. And um, I think I had five or six GCSEs, maybe more. I can't remember now, it was so long ago, 1989. Um, and I tried to join the army, but there was an issue with my medical. Um, so whilst they were sorting that out, I thought, well, if this doesn't work, I'm going to have to do something. So I started doing sixth form um, with a um, CPVE, with Certificate of Pre-Vocational Education in catering. So I was mm. doing day release at a hotel just up the road from where I lived <clears throat> in the kitchens. And then it finally came through um, the, the medical. Um, there was no issue. I just got, I've got a heart murmur, so a regular heartbeat. And um, yeah, so on uh, 9th of January, 1990, so one month before my 17th birthday. So I was 16, I joined the army. Um, so that was like straight from school in effect. And then... Um, I was a chef in the army. So you do your basic training as a soldier. They then teach you to be what your trade is. And then you leave and you join an infantry battalion. I joined a battalion, an infantry battalion. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, spent four and a half years, just a bit over four and a half years in the army. I did a tour of um, Norway with the Royal Marine Commandos. That was Arctic warfare training. And also for the last seven and a half months, I was in Northern Ireland. Now, this was pre-Good Friday government. Um, the IRA tried to kill us my first night there. So you can imagine... <laughs> I thought that if that was an indicator for the next seven and a half months, I, I want to go home now. But obviously, you know, I couldn't and we were we were okay. We had a few scares during the tour, but nothing as bad as the first night. Um mm. so I came back, got out of the army, 21 years old, I, you know, kind of went in a boy, left a man, as it were. <laughs> um I wanted to try and get rid of these feelings of like wanting to be female and having to be female. And I thought if there's one thing that's going to get rid of those feelings, it's the army. It's going to make a man out of me. Um, it really didn't work. And that environment of um, ultra masculinity just didn't align with me. And I was really uncomfortable. 
how they feel as gender dysphoria, gender dysphoria even more as I was in the army, but I still, you know, wanted to see if I could continue creating the military to a degree where it would be a problem. That never mm. occurred. So I left the army. Um, I went and lived home with mum and dad for a bit, um, which was horrendous. You know, 21 years old, just on a tour of an island, coming back. Your mum and dad are saying, where are you going? What are you doing? I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> so that didn't work out that well. Um, I, can't, I can't remember where I lived after then. Oh, yeah. So basically, um, I got a job in a hotel as a chef because that was my career. And I thought, well, I might as well just get another chef job while I'm trying yeah. to figure out what I want to do with my life. And um, got in touch with an old school pal who was into rock music as I was back then heavily. And then we went to um, this club called, what was it called? I can't remember. It's no longer there in Newcastle Heavy Metal Club. But um, I met this woman there and um, we ended up getting together and um, I left my job, went living with her. She had five kids. She was 33 and I was 22 then. My mom and dad weren't impressed. <laughs> but um, yeah, while I was in that relationship, I was able to explore um, elements of my gender identity and expression that I hadn't previously because she was, she was bisexual. So she was quite open to that side okay. of me, if you like. Um, so it kind of, it, it all started coming to the fore. I started doing it with more regularity. This is cross-dressing, by the way. Cross-dressing was where I dealt with my expression of femininity. Um, I was kidding myself because I've done that all my life and I knew that deep down that I wanted to be a woman, but like I didn't really understand how to broach that subject. I really have the courage. You've got to remember this was in 1994, 95 when this was going on. So, you know, the internet wasn't really a thing or if it was, it was just in colleges and stuff, it wasn't worldwide. There wasn't a of information out there about trans people. Um, so I went and spoke to my GP then in Newcastle. He was very sympathetic about my situation. Um, and he said, what I'll do is I'll do a referral to the gender clinic for you. But in the interim, I'll give you some sessions with a counsellor here in the surgery. So at least you can speak to someone about your gender identity while you're waiting for this appointment at the gender clinic. So um, the appointment came, really, really didn't want to go because this was going to be the first time I was going to tell anyone other, one, other than this GP about, you know, my desire to be female. And um, he arranged the appointment, it came through. I got to the session and there was this woman there in this room. So like the chairs were facing each other and it was almost like a hostile environment anyway. Mm. Um, or it seemed hostile, <clears throat> like there was an energy in that room. Like looking back now, it's the first time I've gone there when I've been relaying this story as well there was a bit of a hostility you could just sense it so I sat opposite this woman poured my heart out to her I told her that I felt this way ever since I was little tried to do everything I could to make these feelings go away and it never worked none of it worked and I, I, I kid you not she sat opposite me and she goes you don't sound like a woman you don't act like a woman you don't look like a woman this is a counsellor so I was like I was distraught I was like if I convin can't convince a counsellor that I'm female, how am I going to convince someone at a gender clinic who's a specialist mm. in this, like, that yeah. I'm a female? So, like, I was distraught. I just went back, and, like, three days later, I tried to kill myself. And, like, that is probably one of the lowest points of my life. Um, thankfully, um, someone came in when I was trying to do it, and it didn't, it didn't happen. Um, so, thank God, because, you know, yeah, I wouldn't be sitting here now certainly talking to you if it had happened. But um, yeah. after that experience, I thought, well, no one's ever going to believe me. It's just not right for me. 
that isn't my journey. I'm going to have to try and put that to one side. Um, so I tried to put that to one side with the girlfriend that I was with. But I think because of that experience, because we never talked about it, and because she'd come in and tried to catch me committing suicide, it's slowly that relationship. There wasn't any trust there. And it kind of, it just fell apart. Um, mm. I ended up getting a sales job door to door. And um, yeah, I went doing that and like just selling um, VIP cards for restaurants, like two for one meals, that kind of stuff. Um, I was very good at it because I have, I have got the pattern. <laughs> I <But>, noticed. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the crowd that I was with then, so you're talking about 96, 97, um, okay. all around my age and heavily into the clubbing scene. So like it was, I was 25, 23, 24 years old, like, you know, with all people of my similar age, we're all going out clubbing. We basically work Monday to Saturday, go out Saturday, come in Sunday night and then go out to work again. It was just a continuous cycle for about 18 months. Um, it got tiring and, you know, things were spiraling out of control. And I just thought, you know what? I can't see myself ever being successful or having enough money to do anything in life if I, if I don't get off the cycle because sales can be volatile, especially door to door. You know, some weeks you're not earning enough to even pay your rent kind of thing. Um, so I went back to catering because it was just easy because I'd done that before anyway. And um, I was a head chef at a hotel in Whitley Bay for a while. The Ambassador Hotel in Whitley Bay, I don't know if it's still there. But um, I was down on holiday in Colchester, which is where I was stationed as a soldier. And I, um, I stayed with my ex-girlfriend and her sister because um, they were still friends with me kind of thing. And um, I, just, I just felt like it was an opportunity to have a new lease of life. And then lo and behold, while we were there that weekend, um, a guy said to me, look, I'm setting up this new pub. I need a head chef. I need someone I can trust who can come in and run a kitchen. Do you want to do it? And I was like, do you know what? I, 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 I kid you not, I tossed a coin. I was like, heads do, tails are done. So I got home, heads, right, I'm going. So I, I, I made that decision in my life to move away from Newcastle, my home city, to Colchester again, so down south. Um, so I did the chef and job, a few of the chef and jobs. And then like, I met my ex-wife. <laughs> tell you this at a piercing clinic so she was a piercing nurse um <laughs> i'm not gonna tell you what i was getting pierced i was about to say dare i ask <laughs> <laughs> well any, anyway um you know she was very professional and stuff and it took me getting quite a few piercings to walk persuade her to go on a date with me but like we went on a date and stuff and um i was to say the rest is history we ended up um going on a first date and then that first date was a relationship that lasted 12 years um, we got married and had a child together. Um, mm. All the while, I had these gender identity issues. And, you know, looking back, I was kidding myself. And, like, we had this conversation recently because of COVID. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a second. But um, she's angry that I moved away from our daughter because we have a daughter together um, in the, where I used to live. And, um, sorry. And... She's not angered at the fact that I'm transitioning. She's angered at the fact that because I live far away, I can't do as much shared parenting as I used to. Um, yeah. And especially, you know, kids go through the teenage years and it can be a difficult time. I think if anything, I've got empathy for my daughter because she's 15 and I went through a puberty again at 40. So like, having gone through it again quite recently in my life, I can kind of get a lot of the emotions and stuff that she's going through albeit hers are different because her dad is trans, etc. But that between me and her has never been an issue. I've been digressing, haven't I? <laughs> but with the career and stuff, so um, 
yeah. Um, I had loads of jobs in catering. Right, my ex-wife and I got married and stuff. We're, we're living in the town that we're living in, and I was at a catering um, hotel. In, sorry, uh, a bar and catering manager at this golf club in the town mm. where I live. I was doing ninety hours a week. And it was like my six month review. And basically they said, you're not dedicated enough. <laughs> like, so my wife was um, five months pregnant at the time. Yeah. So as you can imagine, I didn't wish to extend that opportunity. So I just left. Um, and then it was a time like my ex, she goes, what do you want to do? What do you want to do with your life? Like she knows I'm quite caring. She goes, why don't you go to nursing and stuff? And I did seriously consider it. But um, I was still having to look for jobs in the interim. Um, you know, had a baby on the way, pressure there of trying to find something else. Um, so there was a job for um, Churchill Insurance in the town that I was at, a junior position. Like I'd been on 27 grand a year at the time and like this position was 12. So it was a massive drop in salary. Um, and I was like, do I go for it? She goes, well, will you be happy? And I go, probably. She goes, well, do. So I kind of went for the interview and I got there. <laughs> And it's a funny story I'll tell you and relate you back to this in a minute. So um, it was an England football game and all the office were in um, like football shirts. So I'm like suited and booted. I walks in and the, the interviewing manager, this guy called Andy, he gets in and we start talking. He goes, are you from the Northeast? And I goes, yeah, where are you from? I said, I'm from North Shields. And he was from South Shields. And like people from South Shields, we call them sand dancers. Because there's a place in South Shields called the Sand Dancer and it's like there's a long beach and stuff. And like, I couldn't believe I was taking the mickey out of this manager that was trying to interview me for this job. And he, I got in there and he goes, do you want a beer? And like, I thought it was a trick question. And I was like, well, they're all in football shirts, football's on the televisions in the background. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll have a beer. And he said, I knew I was going to hire you then because you were being authentic. You weren't trying to be something that you're not kind of thing. He didn't know. But um, yeah, so I started off in insurance doing um, first notifications so taking reports of accidents from customers. And the longer my insurance career has progressed, the more technical my knowledge has become with more responsibilities dealing with larger value claims. Um, so I ended up working my way up to disputed claims to so argue about liability and then uh, personal injury claims. So not that significant injury at first up to more complex injuries um, and other losses associated with those. Um, and then it all kind of came to a head. Um, I was working at LV in the town I was at. And um, I was, by then my, um, my dad died in 2008 of mislithioma. And it was like, the, my daughter was five at the time. <clears throat> and he was 57 and it gave me a real like, it sometimes it takes tragedy, especially in a situation in, in journeys like mine. There's one commonality is like quite often if we don't explore our gender identity or expression of our gender identity at an early age, especially people around my age, born in the seventies, quite often it's the death of a partner or you know a tragic event in your life that makes you think about your own mortality, how much time you've got left, and how you're going to live the rest of your life. And for me, that was a trigger. Obviously, every journey is different, but for me, my dad dying was a real like look at your life, what you're doing, where you're going, kind of thing. And my wife and I would have been struggling in our marriage and we'd been going for marriage counselling um, up until that point. And after he died, there was a bit of a honeymoon period when like we were making more of an effort and, and things were fine. But the kind of the cracks still, you know, they, they come out and then like later that year. So he died in the August. Um, so it was Christmas after 
she was mega, mega ill. She got this really bad flu and um, she was in bed for days and days. It wasn't like her at all. And my daughter said to me, I'm glad that mummy's ill in bed. And I said, why darling? She goes, because you two aren't fighting. So I was like, oh. I mean, that for me was the final blow. Cause like I was, I knew that it would be hard for her to live with her mum and dad separated. But I also thought that staying together was the right thing to do for her. And evidently it wasn't for her to turn around and say that. So, um, you know, I haven't had a talk with my wife and stuff. Um, after that, um, we decided to split and, um, we did go through some, for some marriage counseling sessions and stuff and it didn't work. So we decided to call it a day. And then I, I got into a relationship with another woman where the patterns of the old relationship that I mentioned earlier came back again. So I was able to explore my gender identity and expression in another way. <clears throat> um, I decided to go out in Newcastle, um, randomly. She liked football. I like football. We went out to Newcastle. She'd never been to St. James's Park. So we went out there. And then that evening, we were going to go out with me as Debbie. So I went out into the gay village as Debbie for the first time in Newcastle. Because I thought, if I can go out in my home city, I can go out anywhere. And I thought, yeah. I've been away long enough that no one's going to recognise me anyway. So, like, honestly, I walked through Newcastle City Centre and I was absolutely trembling. And I remember going to the um, to this crossing out over the road from this uh, gay bar in Newcastle. And there was these big, through big, massive gay bears, like, there, standing there. And, like... They looked at me and went, you're right, love. And I went, no, I'm absolutely myself. Because <laughs> what for? You look lovely. And I was like, oh, thank you. It was like the perfect thing that they could have said. So I settled my nerves and went into that bar. And for the first time in my life, Steve, people were using she, her. They were calling me Debbie. And like, for me, my whole life would, would never have been out in situations like, out socially or whatever, there's always been an element of myself that's been wishing I'm something that I wasn't at that time. Mm. That was the first time in my life I was out and I wasn't wishing I was anything that I wasn't. It's like, fuck. I, something inside me that might just switched. I was like, I'm going to do it. So we got back to the hotel and um, my then girlfriend, she goes, you're going to do it, aren't you? And I went, yeah, she just knew. Um, so we drove back home um, from Newcastle to where we're living and like me dressed like that. Um, and then on the Monday, I literally, I got into work. I said to my boss, look, well, he, he managed the whole office. I didn't go to my team leader because the, the office was a bit gossipy. I knew it would get round if I went to him. So I went to the manager of the whole building. said, look, I need to have a meeting with you. Can I do it? And he said, yeah. So I went in and um, he was really good. He facilitated um, the whole of my moving from that office to another one, another part of the country, because I really, I needed a new start. And I figured, especially with my daughter being in primary school, I wanted to be near enough that I could get to work relatively easy, but far enough away that if, you know, her school friends found out, I wouldn't cause a situation with her with bullying at school, etc. So yeah. um, I did move away from her and like, that was really tough. Um, but being in another town felt like it was an, an, an easier for me to, to develop this new identity, this Debbie. But um, yeah, so like I worked for LB at the time, they facilitated my transition at work and they were, they were brilliant. Um, Worked for LV in Bournemouth for five and a half, six years nearly. And then um, whilst I was there, um, there wasn't really any LGBT representation um, in, in the business. And um, <laughs> Mike Rogers was the CEO of LV at the time. It was really funny, actually. Um, they had a, he had this thing called Open Mic, which basically him in a room, 
anyone in the business could go and you can ask them a question and have the head, head of comms there and a few other like senior people within the company. And I, and I actually went to him like, and he goes, right, this is open. He says, hi, Mike, I've been here for, I've literally been at LV Bournemouth for four months. <laughs> um, there's no LGBT representation in LV or no one who's like, you know, who I can go to as a representative for my community. Why is that? <laughs> he looks at me and then he looks at the head of like comms and he's like, I don't know. <laughs> and I was like, you know, when you feel yourself, like you want to just blend into the wall. It's like, what have I done? <laughs> but it was a good conversation because a few days later, like one of the HR directors, like had a meeting with him and he invited me to enjoy the employee forum, mm. um, which is a representation forum. And, you know, I had a good three, four years in that forum itself, but we started looking at um, the uh, protect the characteristics of the um, Equality Act. So they, they started building networks for um, underrepresented minorities in LV. The first one they did was a women's network, but the next one after that was the Pride Network. And I got heavily involved in that, um, helped them set up their Pride Network and then got involved with the initiatives around the Pride Network across the business and collaborations with other um, companies in Bournemouth and stuff. And then um, I remember I was sitting at work one day and I got this email saying, congratulations, you've been shortlisted for the Women in Finance Awards. And I'm like, you know, when you get this stuff and you go, it's spam, it's got to be. So like, I looked into it and no, I, I had been shortlisted for the um, inaugural Women in Finance Awards and um, Insurance Leader of the Year. So um, like you go on the website, you look at the link and um, there was the head of DNI for Lloyds of London, Pauline Miller. She's actually a friend of mine. She's a lovely lady, um, larger than life. Um, and all these other massive heads and directors in like Zurich and all these other insurers. And it's like little old lady me. I was a fraud handler, very senior experienced handler, but nevertheless a handler. And I thought, there is no way on this planet I'm going to get that when the head of diversity inclusion in Lloyds of London is being nominated. But, you know, LV, they, they got a table and they, they said I could go and stuff. And um, Stuart Affleck, um, who was the HR director who went with me at the time, um, I remember that it was a real Oscars kind of moment. So we're all sitting there and they're announcing the, the, the shortlisted like nominees on the big screens. And it goes, and the winner is, and they went Debbie Cannon. And I looked at the screen, it was a picture of me. And I was like, it was almost like I was having an out-of-body experience kind of thing. And then Stuart just stood up and he went, yes! <laughs> and um, yeah, I walked up to the stage and got the award and stuff. And what they were doing with the winners, they were like, up on stage, kept presented the award, photographs, and then whisked off to do a camera interview. And um, yeah, I'd, I, it, it was all a bit of a whirlwind after that. Um, the insurance post after that award ceremony, we're doing an article on diversity in the insurance industry. And um, they said, would you be interested in being featured? You just won this award. I was, yeah, absolutely. And then um, as part of that um, feature, they wanted me to come down to London for a photo shoot at the CII the Child mm -hmm. Insurance Institute in London. And I was like, okay, yeah. Um, and I remember that day, my then fiance was like, do you want to go, do you want to go? And I was like, you know when you can't be bothered? And like, when I was living in Bournemouth, it was like six hour round journey. And I was like, I really don't want to go, don't want to go. She's like, go. She persuaded me to go. So um, we got in there and I met Sam White, who is the CEO of Poco Insure and Freedom Group. So um, she, um, enigmatic, um, female um, CEO of an insurer, which is quite rare, but she's also like a, a lesbian and proud of that as well. 
So like we, we, we just sparked off each other straight away. Um, I remember one question she asked me, she goes, if you're in the matrix, which pill would you take? Like the blue or the red one? And I said, the one that gets you out of the matrix. And she's like, why? And it goes, well, even if you know that you're going to die, which is like Neo's path. Like if you could affect change and make the world a better place, wouldn't you? She goes, do you want a job? <laughs> so she offered me a job. And then like after a few weeks of negotiating backwards and forwards, um, and a 10 hour round trip on my day off with an hour interview in between. Um, I got offered a role up there. So like it was a move to Manchester or near Manchester from Bournemouth. So it was quite a big move. Um, same distance to my ex-wife's house though. So like in terms of seeing my daughter, it wasn't going to be mm. any different really. So um, I just took the plunge and I'm glad I did because the position was much more senior than what I had previously, but it, it, I kind of, I don't know. I felt like, uh, I wasn't going to get anywhere. How if I stayed at LV insurance? It was a great company to work for. They supported me and I'll forever be grateful to them and for the support and everything. And I'm still friends with a lot of people there, but I just felt like an opportunity to grow again. I felt like I'd outgrown where I was kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I worked at, um, freedom group for, two and a bit years, had three roles, each role um, had different responsibilities and stuff. But um, unfortunately, my last role was, um, I was group internal marketing manager. So we went for a rebranding, interrogation of the brand, um, launched a brand internally and, um, you know, really, really enjoyed it, really passionate about it. And it was completely away from claims, which is what I'd done for like 17 years. But um Lo and behold, um, the company was restructuring and stuff. And when you go through that and you're looking at your budget and what you can and get rid of, the marketing team probably is one of the first teams to suffer kind of thing because it's superfluous. You're not going to be spending money on that. So, um, yeah, my job went and went through the redundancy process. And unfortunately, I wasn't one of the ones who stayed on. But it's, it's worked out because, you know, coming into lockdown, uh, I finally found out... Um, the day before, I, I tried to go for other roles, but wasn't successful. And then I went for another role. And then basically they put a freeze on recruitment. So mm. I wasn't going to get a role anyway. So yeah, um, had to sign on or try and make a claim for uh, benefits. And um, put a shout out on LinkedIn. Uh, a, connect, a friend of a connection shared it. And then some recruiter contacted me. And then um, her name's Lisa. Um, from IDEX uh, recruiters and then basically she said like we had a chance like I want to get you a job I want to get you a job she just heard of she, someone told her of someone who'd been offered a uh, position virtually they'd been interviewed for it um, virtually they were offered to remote start but they didn't want to start for a company where they hadn't been to the office mm. um, I mean it takes all sorts I guess but um that was lucky for me because she heard of this from someone else. They, she then contacted the company, got me an interview. And then like a few days later, I was offered a job and it was just a case of waiting for my um, DBS check and stuff to come through. And then, so like I started, like I said about, it feels like forever cause lockdown has such, been such an intense period. And for the first, I think two weeks of lockdown, I didn't have a role and then I did. So it might be seven or eight weeks that I've been in the role but it feels like a lot longer. But like, you know, I had a, um, a dialogue with my team leader a few days ago and like he basically said, um, you know, he's been impressed with how I've hit the, the ground running kind of thing. But, um, you know, so 
I think sometimes we don't um, take stock and appreciate how much we've gone through and how strong we've been and how much we've had to adapt and stuff. So like, I know I've gone off on a few tangents and stuff at times with this story, but like, I think since I've become Debbie, I've never been able to contribute as much as I have because there's always been an element of hiding who and what I am. Yeah. And now I don't have to hide any of who and what I am. I can express myself freely and be as like creative as I can because I don't have to hide any element of who and what I am. So like, yeah, my life's amazing now, honestly. <laughs> what <The> am I <laughs> I suppose it's it's really nice to hear people talking very positively about their career journeys, and you've obviously been through a, a really, um, really interesting career journey. There's coming from the army, becoming a chef, getting into insurance, being recognised for the work that you're doing, and that's a bit that I want to pick up here. First of all, is kind of when you were building out that pride network. I, I, first of all, I think it's kind of interesting because I, I work with a lot of employers and I find that the focus tends to be very heavily on gender and then straight on to BAME, then maybe disability. And LGBT for me sometimes comes last. So for it to be a second um, network there. But there's probably people, maybe not people listening, but I, I think maybe there are, I don't know. But um, sometimes I think there's these challenges when you get ahead and you're looking at something and how am I going to set up this network so how did you go about setting up a network um, and what were you aiming to get out of that the aim of it was to have a, a place where people felt safe to be able to discuss LGBT issues in the workplace mm -hmm. so um, each network had pages on the internet that were open and closed so the open pages would announce stuff like events that we were doing um collaborative events that we we're doing with say um jp morgan we did some events with them that were pride related um and that was on the open page and then on the closed page you'd have discussions around support for um gender fluid people at work support for people who were coming out of work support for managers who were managing people who were coming out at work um it was more around facilitating the conversations around LGBT and LGBT practices within the workplace to almost make them normal as if you were chatting about someone filling in a, like annual leave request and I'm not, I'm not trying to be flippant or blase about it but I think that the more that you facilitate the, the ability for people to have the conversations around LGBT a lot of time a lot of the time people who aren't um fully appreciative of these issues that we go through or people don't understand us i think a lot of the time they kind of their interest to learn and they want to learn so what we used to do steve as well we used to hold like um open sessions like across like a two-hour lunch period where people could just come up and have a chat about what we did it was more we'd look at our policies and ensure they weren't discriminatory to the lgbt community in any shape or form yeah. and one of the things i did do you asked about the influence that i had um when I came to transition at LV, um, you know, you, you consider coming out an insurer, you, you, it's almost a kind of, you hear of the negative stories that people who are trans, who come out, who have no rights and end up leaving. So I went to look at the policies surrounding um, gender dysphoria and um, gender reassignment at LV. 
and literally all there was, there was something on the Equality Act that said what the protected characteristic was as in gender reassignment is protected under the Equality Act of 2010, but that was it. There was nothing about what to do if you're an employee who has it or guidance for managers or anything. So I worked with HR and we wrote the policies for managers and for employees to have as a guidebook about, you know, what steps can be taken to ensure someone is considered and supported in the workplace. So I'm really proud of that. And if that was the reason that I was nominated for that award, then, you know, sometimes I feel like, well, do I deserve it? Because people have done like more than I have, but like, I don't think it can be like that. I think I want to make the world a better place. And I know that's a bit like hippie or whatever, but like if sharing my journey and my experiences can make someone else's life better, someone can learn from my experience and it doesn't have to be gender dysphoria or you know lgbt but if someone has something that they want to do and they're holding themselves back for a fear of failure then i just say just do it because if you never try you'll never know it it's really that simple but i've gone off tangent haven't i i do do this no you haven't no you haven't no it's it's, it's interesting i think i completely agree with you on that how you gotta gotta give it a go I mean, otherwise, in some ways, what's life worth living for in a way? It's kind of like you can just go, you can just sleepwalk through life if you want to. But I, I, I really kind of like commend you for your attitude around like actually being, want, being wanting to be somebody who wants to make change happen. Mm-hmm. And, and, be, and, and that's, it's not an easy task. That with most of the issues that are out there that have got people that are looking to lead change, the, the topics that there are, the issues that they're going to champion, aren't necessarily, sadly, things that they might see to the end, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You look at everything that's happening around kind of uh, the uprisings around Black Lives Matters and everything like that. I mean, that's decades, that's centuries and centuries of things that have that are really just starting to. I suppose, kind of, the be interesting for me, kind of, because I I feel like in terms of our community at the moment of LGBT, that trans is in a place where it's never been before. I think it is. Um, I think that. We, we kind of, we existed in the shadows and like people were aware of us, but we weren't really a problem. Yeah. Or, there weren't enough of us in positions of success for it to um, stir up the bigots enough. I'm going to say it. I'm going to call it what it is. There's no point in, in skirting around it if that's okay. Um, yeah, go for it. <laughs> thank you. Um, so like, I mean, probably one of the most inspirational, famous uh, trans women, if you look, um, later than Lily Elb, obviously who Eddie Raidman. I mean, there's some people who hate the fact that the Danish girl was played by a trans woman, but the fact is when the script was written, when they were recording the Miz, he was offered the, the role and he took it and he actually took the role very seriously and he's a great advocate for the trans community since. And he's come out against what JK Rowling has said. I know we'll probably yeah, we'll go. Come, that we'll come back to that in a second. But um if you look at people like April Ashley, April Ashley was a famous uh but she was a she was a model in the sixties, and like she, I think she was at the she appeared on the Moulin Rouge and stuff. She was on the cover of Vogue. She was a model in Paris. Elvis Presley wanted to date her, and then Colonel Sanders found out that she was trans, and like they basically they outed her, and like it it, it messed her career up completely. And like so, like historically, whenever people have got into positions of of success, 
as a trans person, then it's it's stirred up the bigots. And like I think trans now, to go back to the comp what you just said, it's like, you know where um the gay community were in the eighties with section twenty eight and everything. I think that's where we are now with trans. I think we're at a real crossroads. It's like and if you look at the the, the current minister around equality, um if you can call it that, they're looking to um reconsider some of the recommendations from the GRA reform uh, paper that was published a few years ago because they're concerned about the erasure of single-sex spaces. It's so, it's so frustrating and, you know, I mean, you've got, you've got school kids in Oxfordshire, for example, who are suing their local council because they don't want trans kids to use the same changing facilities or toilets as them. These are funded by the right-wing Christian groups in America who are trying to roll back trans rights and like discriminate against LGBT people over there. They see it as a way of destabilizing our community. It's why they fund the LGB Alliance. You know, these people who want to be, you know, diverse, diversity to, to split up our community. I mean, if, if you look at, I, I think the more niche our community co comes, it's, it could be a dangerous thing because especially a lot of young LGBT people at the moment, LGBTQIA plus people, they see the older community, they see this arguing going on that's in mainstream media. They see the LGB alliance and they feel like they're not represented by any of these people. So they, they, they come up with their new identities and you have to accept that that is part of the human experience and the, ex the expansion of culture is language and develops, identities develop. But I think we're becoming so widespread that it's actually, we're losing the whole thing. Like, what, I prefer the term queer, if I'm honest with you, because I think it's all inclusive. The way that like, I've never considered anyone who has a different color skin to me to have be any less of a human than I am. Like, you know, ev everyone has a right to, to live in their own life and be, you know, supported and have the same rights as everyone else. And that's the way I feel about any of the LGBTQIA plus identities. But I think that, the community is becoming more divided because of what is going on in the mainstream media, what's happening in America. I mean, if you look at a third of Poland now, is a no-go zone for LGBT people. Trans people in Hungary during COVID have been made illegal. So like it, it's, for every step that we're making, it seems like we're making a step back as well. It is a worrying time for the trans community in Britain. And like, if you look at this ministers wants to consider some of the recommendations of these trans exclusionary feminists. I'm not gonna call them radi um, radical because a radical is someone who's free thinking and who wants to improve society for a change. If they're aggressive, they're not radical, they're aggressive feminists. Feminism should be about all females. I mean, I am not a threat to a female using the loo. So under, under the kind of rules and restrictions that they're looking to bring into society that aren't here currently. I can use a, a loo that fits my gender identity. I, I go into the loo, I do my business and I leave. And you have the scaremonger saying, oh, men are gonna go in in dresses. I, I don't believe it. And in countries where this has been a thing where people can you know, have their gender identity um, done without having to go through a gender recognition panel where non-binary people are legally recognized, Iceland, Ireland, and Malta. Mm -hmm. No issue at all. Why is it going to be an issue in this country? It isn't. It's just the right-wing Christian-funded groups who are trying to 
disrupt and destabilize our community by causing division, by, by attacking the trans community. If you think about it, we're the most vulnerable because even within the community, there are certain elements of our community who aren't comfortable with it. And, and if you can attack a chink in the armor, then you can destabilize the whole thing. And it's what they're trying to do. I think if anything, the LGBT community needs to pull together. If you look at like Stonewall, yes, that has been just shouted, are we gonna stand here and take this? But it was like Master Johnson who was at the front, who was like throwing bricks and stuff. Like if trans people have always been at the forefront of progress for our community. And like, we need to remember our history. And I think love, love, I know, it's, a very kind of fluffy way of looking at it, but love conquers all, it does. You know, I don't, I have as much right to exist without prejudice as these people, but I'm gonna contradict myself here a little as well, but I think, I think they have a right to a debate. And the trouble with debate sometimes, you know yourself, uh, Steve, it's like when, when people have a debate, you get, um, they become entrenched in their views and they don't listen. I think we need to have a discussion and, and learn from each other and, and try and you know understand what these people's fears are. But you know, connect with humanity. Don't connect with the gender identity. Don't connect with the sexuality. Connect with the humanity. Because if you connect with the humanity, the rest just falls away. Yeah. No, you're completely right. I find it. I think the thing that I struggle with, and I think many people struggle with, and I'm not trying to kind of like make an excuse for it, but I, I've often thought, like, especially back from my days when I first moved down to London in what, 2006 and started as a, a secondary school teacher, mm -hmm. we don't teach our children and our young people to start with, and we haven't done before, how to have, how to enter into discourse and how to respect other people's opinions and how to have a discussion. We're so heavily, we're very heavily, even before social media came along, you're very heavily influenced by your, your bubble. So where you grew up, who your parents might have been, their, their attitudes, the way they lived, they left me. I'm, I grew up in the Lake District and like, it's, it's one of those places where, People are just so set in their ways, and they don't experience. Like people, people I know have come down um, here, like friends or family, are like they're like, "Oh, the big bad city, like this is it," and then they go home like exhausted and terrified. And I'm kind of like, "Come on, like seriously." But I think I, I think that's part of the part of the the challenge is that like, how do you? have a discussion to move things forward because what people tend to do is they start to tear people apart or see it as a competition that the one side has to win or the other. And I feel like with, um, with anything to do with our community or to be fair across any kind of issue around equality, I've got a very kind of strong opinion of kind of like, if I'm not directly affecting your life why is it why has it got anything to do with you in a way i want to challenge you and i want to be able to move things forward but what always always kind of like kind of irritating me is kind of just like people need to people spend too much time trying to focus on other people when they probably need to do a lot more work on themselves i'd agree, I'd agree. Kind of yeah definitely i mean one of the things that 
we've had more time on our hands in lockdown because we're not doing the things that we used to do to occupy ourselves and you know, the commute has gone. Like, yeah. you know, my commute is walking upstairs with a brew and <laughs> I'm at work. So um, <clears throat> I just think that you can use that in one or two ways. You can either be productive or you can be vitriolic and kind of go down the route of, <clears throat> you know, the, the, like the JK Rowling has with the trans stuff. Like she's a, she contradicted herself because she said like, I march with, with trans people and I, I see your struggle. But she's basically said, because I don't menstruate, I'm not a woman. It's like, what? It, I, I just think it's sad when someone who has come from a, you know, she was a single mum with depression, as I understand it, um, struggling to make ends meet. And of course she's a billionaire now, or she was, and then she gave money away, so she's not no longer. But like, when you come to a position of privilege and then you start punching down, I think it's wrong. I think that you should be a bit more responsible with your platform and your words. But again, you know, if that's what she firmly believes, then rather than attack her, I would want to have a conversation with her. You know, J.K. Rowling, if you're listening, let's have a chat. Come meet me. We'll, we'll chat on YouTube territory. We're going to have someone who facilitates. Steve can facilitate the discussion. There you go. <laughs> Like let's just have a chat about the humanity in us in our stories. Um, I I am not a threat, and like it's a dangerous argument when you think about it. Because let's strip the argument back for what it is. What they're basically saying is trans women are men and men are rapists. That is what they're saying, and it's a really like gender is here, sex is there. Gender is in my brain. Gender is who I am and how I identify. As, as abhorrent as it is to say this someone who is a sexual predator that is their sexuality that is who they are that is how they get turned on so to 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 put gender identity and sexuality together it's wrong for a start because if gender identity and sexuality were aligned that would mean that there would be no gay men and no lesbian women or there wouldn't be bi people because you would be attracted to a, a gender because of your sex that isn't true so the, the, the confusing the argument, the confusing the science, and I just, I think we need to practice compassion. Compassion is lacking in a lot of society. Compassion and kindness and respect and, 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 to, and talking and listening and not, not listening to respond in a way that's vitriolic or attacking the person, like taking a step back to learn about them and learning where they're coming from and learning why they are the way they are. Because if, you know, if you, if, to use the Black Lives Matter as, a, as an example, you know, there are people like who are tearing down statues and stuff and those who are open arms about it. But like, think how painful that is for black people as someone who was like a slaver who was throwing people overboard in Bristol, you know, has a statue of him and streets named after him in Bristol. And they've been, if this isn't a, like an overnight thing, they have been campaigning for years and years to have the statue removed. And it hasn't, and the protest has been a kind of, you know, a straw that's brought on the camel's back and it's, it's gone down. It's right. I mean, society needs to progress. Totally. Totally right. And one of the ways that you're helping society uh, progress that I've seen recently is you, you do your um, interviews on a Wednesday night, don't you, for, um, for mental health? 
I do. Tell everybody a little bit about that because that's a really good example. I feel of um, well, of of you, but like of people using a platform positively. Thanks, thanks, love. I really appreciate your reference in it. So um, I do a music blog called Dreaming Is Free, um, and for Mental Health Awareness Week, what I wanted to do is to, to facilitate some discussions around mental health. Um, I'm someone who suffered with mental health um, myself, and I had an um, eating disorder. I had bulimia early on in my transition when I was going through a bad patch. So um, I wanted to do something to help other people for Mental Health Awareness Week. And like, I know uh, quite a lot of musicians and band, bands and stuff. So I thought, do you know what? Why don't I do a series of interviews? We're all in lockdown. We'll just have a chat about mental health. So I, I, I got a series of questions that I wanted to kind of get through as you know, you do with an interview, but if the conversation goes on tangent, you just run with it kind of thing. But I, I reached out to my friends, so I had, I did plan to just do one Monday to Sunday. Um, and then I got halfway through the, like I got to Wednesday and I thought, hang on a minute, I could do two on the weekend because I'm not at work. So I, I got more people lined up for the weekend. And then um, it, it got to like the, the Saturday afternoon, Steve, and I was like, do you know what? This series has been so successful. I have so much positive feedback online from people who like, when a musician like, we put famous people on a pedestal for whatever reason. So they appear to be successful. They appear to be like winning at life, if you like. But when they share their vulnerability, it touches a chord because you realize that they're just like you and I. So like, because of the feedback from our series, I thought, you know what? I want to continue the conversations beyond Mental Health Awareness Week. Um, And halfway through the week, I was like, I don't want it to just be the conversations and that's it and have nothing to show at the end of it other than the interviews. So I reached out to all of them and I said to them, I want you to do a video clip. And at the end of it, say, you don't need to suffer in silence. And um, so I did that, put the video together, released that at the end of the week. So there's, there's, if you go on um, to Dream Ministry on YouTube, the YouTube channel that I have for my music blog, there's a video on there with all the musicians sharing a bit about their mental health journey. And then we all say, you don't need to suffer in silence. I also got my friend who speaks sign language to do a bit to camera because, you know, it's not discriminatory. Deaf people suffer with, you know, mental health as well. And then at the end of the week, I thought, well, do you know what? Everyone's still in lockdown. Um, I want to continue these conversations with another series of interviews, but I'll do it once a week. And um, I called it Good Vibrations because it's music related, obviously, you know, um, Beach Boys, Beach Boys. <laughs> got the reference. Got the reference. <laughs> yeah, it's so good vibrations with the Beach Boys, and then um, you know, good vibrations doesn't it has kind of mental health connotations as well. So I've done three interviews now, and I've got a, a, a quite a cool one interview uh, next week. Who um, it's a uh, two members of a band which I haven't done before, so that'll be interesting. But um, I just the the messages and the feedback that I've had from people in doing that, I think it's a really valuable thing to talk about our mental health status and to keep talking about it in like even my own journey. Like people see like, oh yeah, you've done this award, you're doing all these blogs, you're doing this writing for this website and stuff, like you're really successful, like there's nothing wrong with you. And I and I've actually lost friends recently because I've said to them that like they said, oh, like, you look, you're really happy all the time. And I was like, I'm not. I'm, I'm actually, I have quite low self-esteem and I feel like anxiety a lot. And they're like, you're not the person we thought you were. So like, I'm like, seriously, if, if you reveal yourself to a friend in that way and they reject you, then they're not a friend worth having anyway. It kind of yeah. made me sad more than anything. But um, 
when I shared that the other day about being anxious about having to go back outside and stuff and like integrate with other people and like because coronavirus I think it's made us even more wary of strangers because you know there's no obvious symptoms of it other than the cough and stuff so like it's made us distrust people to a degree and like I was in a really low place the other day so I just shared it ordinarily I would just try and deal with it I'd eat binge eat and then go and be sick or whatever but like and you know because that's been my way of dealing with this stuff in the past but I just got it out put a video on Facebook and then just sometimes I record stuff to camera and I won't put it out there you know because you can't live your whole life through the lens can you but um I just shared it because I thought it might resonate with some people and the messages that I got back off of it it's like everyone is feeling it you know, we, we all go for periods, especially now when everything seems so intense, doesn't it? It's like, it almost feels like we're in our own episode of The Truman Show. We feel like the whole world is watching. <laughs> yeah, I know. They probably are, because we're all broadcasting it. So. Oh. <laughs> There's never probably been as much, like, white noise as there is at the moment out there. Yeah, gotcha. something like this happened a year, happened a hundred years ago. There'd be one textbook with a paragraph of what happened, and then if somebody comes back to look for twenty twenty, they'd be like, "Where the hell do I start with all this?" The Encyclopedia Britannica of COVID. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ridiculous. Oh. I, I honestly think that the meaning of life is to to connect with the humanity and people, and to send out ripples of positivity and ripples of ourself and like acceptance and love to to each other and like in sharing our experiences and sharing what we're going through that that is it's connecting with people it's about connecting with the humanity in that situation so like that is why i do this and it's why i'll continue yeah. to do this i mean a lot of trans people once they've transitioned or once they've had they've got to a level in their transition whether it's social surgical whatever their journey is because each trans identity is different mm-hmm. a lot of people won't be vocal about it because they just want to get on with their life and it not be something that defines them. But irrespective of how comfortable I am in my body and self and identity, I will always be trans and I'm proud of that. And I share it, not because I want fame or anything else. I share it because I know that when I was questioning who and what I was, I wanted to see examples of people who to a certain degree looked authentic, but also were happy. So if I can give one person that, job done. Amazing. And on that note, I'm gonna before I, I can ask you one more question in a second, I'm gonna wrap things up there. Um, what would be, looking back on your career, what would be the, the best piece of advice that you would give the listeners, Debbie? Don't be afraid to take a risk. Don't be afraid to say that you can do something and then learn how to do it. But don't also don't be afraid to ask for help. People want to help. And if you have someone around you who's in a position that you want to get to, you know, they'll be more often than not, they'll be happy to share that knowledge with you. I think that we are too afraid to fail, fail. But also, you know, ask, just ask people. You know, when I was doing this mental health series, like with the musicians, like I, I, I got Sophie from Sophie and the Giants to do the final one that week. She's one of my favorite musicians. Like they're quite a big band, but like mm-hmm. she's, she's, she's a mate. But in the same breath, I was like, can I do this? 
and like I just asked and she was like so up for it and I've done a mental health awareness interview on the VLM the magazine I write for off the back of it as well and like it's had so much like positive energy come from it online I mean 99.9% of the people out there are nice people and they want to help you and if someone's done something that you want to do and you can learn from them how to do that and do it in a way where you don't have to make the same mistakes that they did then I don't know why you wouldn't do that yeah Perfect. Well, oh, thank you so much. With me. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks so much for your time. I've loved hearing. I've heard little bits there that I didn't already know some new bits I don't. And I always enjoy chatting to you, Debbie. So thank oh, you for giving up some time. Um, if you've enjoyed uh, listening, then please do uh, leave a review and remember to subscribe. And um, I'll be back next week with the final of these five episodes of the My Proud Career Story um, with one of my best friends, Harriet, who is my um, ally. So um, I will speak to you all then. Bye, Harriet. Bye, Debbie. Bye, love. Take care. Bye. Bye.